This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Joel Cherney. While Audrey Hepburn is justly remembered for her acting career, even more than 25 years after her death, little has been published about her early life. Born in 1929, she lived through terrible times, including the Nazi invasion of the Netherlands. In his book, Dutch Girl, Audrey Hepburn and World War II, Robert Matson examines her formative years that affected her future career. The book was published in 2019 by Goodnight Books. Robert and I discuss how he chose to write this book, as well as the various previously unknown resources he used to tell the story. Welcome, Robert Matson. Hi, Robert. Hi, Joel. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me again. Um, you and I actually talked back in 2016, also on the New Books Network, about your previous book, uh, Mission, Jimmy Stewart and the Fight for Europe, and um, which actually, as you call it, is this, the middle book of your what you're calling your World War II trilogy that started uh, with Fireball about Carol Lombard's uh, accident, and then, of course, Mission. And then the new book, which is Dutch Girl, about Audrey Hepburn and her um, World War II um, memories or, or situation. And, and we'll obviously get into a lot of detail about that as we go. So once again, like I say, I'm, I'm glad we had a chance to talk again. Well, yeah, I, you know, it's not exactly a chore to talk to you, Joel. So um, I'm looking forward to it. I know, like I said before, we've talked already, but let's let's go a little back. And because obviously these are not your first, this is not your first book. In fact, you've been written quite a bit. And I appreciate the fact that you uh, developed an actual trilogy related to World War II and and Hollywood figures. So, but what is your background as far as writing? I know you've written a lot about Hollywood, so um, in the movies, so um, and mostly about actual actors, people. So, how long have you been writing and? And what led you to decide to to feature Hollywood in your writing? Well, uh, my first book was published by Bantam right out of college. Um, I had been uh, a history major in college and done a lot of research work and decided to turn that into a book called Research Made Easy. And I did that. And Bantam bought it. And I was surprised as anybody. <laughs> um, uh, and my love. Hollywood, I guess, goes back to my dad. You know, he and I watched movies together growing up. And um, as a teenager, I just I just 
became immersed in Hollywood history and loved it so much and uh, was able, was lucky enough to be able to combine my love of history and my love of Hollywood and actually make it a career, basically. It's funny because I do remember when you talked about this the last time. Uh, my career was a, as a librarian, but I also have a history master's and, and teach history. So it's one of those things where you actually put together a couple of my and films tend to be where I like to read the most about. So um, it sort of all comes together in one location. Uh, yeah. So what made you decide originally to to feature books? I mean, we'll talk about Dutch Girl in more detail, but as we've already said, this is a you know, this is not the first time you've talked about World War II and uh, Hollywood. What made you decide that this was a, a particular area that you wanted to emphasize? Well, <clears throat> I had done actually two books on Errol Flynn. Um, one about his house, which was you know, it's become a little bit of a cult classic. And then I did a book on Errol Flynn and Olivia de Havilland, which sort of strayed into World War II territory on the home front. Um, after that project, I had long wanted to do something about Carol Lombard because I had been aware that a lot of the plane wreckage from TWA Flight 3, where she died with 21 others, was still up on Mount Potosi, Nevada. And, and that was just such a spooky thought to me, you know, that was the beginning of fireball, um, climbing the mountain to that spot and then covering that weekend. And after I had done that book and it had been pretty successful, um, it combined, it was like hardcore aviation, which was also an interest of mine because I had worked for NASA aeronautics for about 10 years. And so I was able to bring that knowledge of airplanes and aerodynamics uh, into that book about Carol Lombard. And then all of a sudden, here I am doing books on, you know, Hollywood aviation. <laughs> and that led me into, well, what other famous aviation stories have never been told? Oh, Jimmy Stewart as a, as a uh, bomber pilot. That story had never been told. So it was kind of natural um, to keep me in the World War II era and Hollywood and aviation. And that's how Mission came about. And while I was in Europe uh, researching that story, uh, I stopped in Arnhem in the Netherlands and learned that Audrey Hepburn had been there during the war. So it was kind of serendipity. I wanted to know uh, for my own edification, okay, well, what were her experiences Arnhem like in Arnhem? And I, uh, I looked around and I couldn't find much about it. And I was really surprised, you know, there wasn't much online about her years in Arnhem during the war. Um, the biographies, I, it was like deja vu. It was like when I would try to find information on Jimmy Stewart in the war in his biographies, there, it would just be a couple of pages. And it was like, how can that be? This is World War II. So um, before long, I'm beginning to wonder if maybe I need to write this book about what Audrey's war was like. And, uh, and that's how that happened. And I, just like with Mission, I had a, a go, no-go point can I find his combat mission reports? That was the mission, go or no go. For Dutch Girl, it was going over to Arnhem again 
and talking to the historians there about what research was available. And I got very lucky because there was an exhibit in Arnhem at the um, Airborne, the British Airborne Museum about the Battle of Arnhem, the Bridge Too Far Battle. And that's in Osterbeck, next to Arnhem. And they had an exhibit called Ella and Audrey, about Audrey and her mother during the war. And the person who helped put that together was a young researcher named Madi von Landers. And I was able to hire her to be like my boots on the ground in Holland to um, research Audrey's mother, Ella, and Audrey during the war. And uh, so one thing led to another, and now here we're talking about a book called Dutch Girl. And one of the things the mission <clears throat> talked about was a lot, it, it talked about his, Jimmy Stewart's uh, activities during the war, but also about how the war affected him going forward and how it was reflected in his later work, the work that he did particularly right after the war, right after the his time when the war ended. Where Dutch Girl is different in that, as the subtitle of it is, Audrey Hepburn in World War II. This is just about her time period during the war. Now, she was born, um, She, I think uh, the paperwork says she would have been 90 this year, so that means she was born in 1929. Um I know these dates well because <laughs> I've got old, old, old in-laws, and 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 they're all in their nineties. So those dates flow off. Um, but so her, she grew up in the pre-war period, but then going right through World War Two. And when did she actually? Before we go back and discuss in the book, when did she first uh, appear on screen? When did she first uh, begin working in the film industry? She did a, a little low-budget thing called um, The Netherlands and Seven Lessons, where she played a KLM stewardess. And that was in either late 46 or early 47. She never had, she would tell you, if she was sitting here, she would tell you, never had any ambition to be in the picture business at all. You know, she wanted to be a ballerina. Um, but she kept getting steered toward um toward the movies. Uh, it was easy money for very little work. <laughs> and so she started to pick up little bit parts in um, bigger feature films. And she also did some British television work in the late 40s. So um, her career was, it built slowly in 48, 49, 50. In 51, she did this very significant film to her timeline called Secret People that was about um, the time period in Europe leading up to World War II and, and spies. And, and she played the younger sister of a woman who was involved in a spy ring. Very cool stuff. A, a greatly overlooked picture almost nobody has seen. But it gives you a glimpse of a really young Audrey. I mean, she looks younger than her years. She's about 20 then. But you get to see her dance, ballet, and you get to see her early acting, really very good acting for this girl who claimed she had no experience. So um, that was, you know, there's talk that, oh, um, she was discovered for Gigi with no experience on the screen. And then she made Roman Holiday. Well, that's not really true. She had she had decent grounding in camera work and direction even before Roman Holiday. But 
what's interesting is obviously she didn't start acting until after the war ended, but it's what happened during the war, which is so important for the book. And part of it being that, as you pointed out with Jimmy Stewart, when you suddenly discovered there was a lot of information that wasn't available that said, you said to yourself, okay, there's got to be a story there. Otherwise, it, somebody else would have already written it uh, or at least discussed it. Well, the same thing with Audrey Hepburn. Um, she was born in the Netherlands um, and lived her entire early life in that area. Um, of course, was affected by World War II when the, the Netherlands was was invaded by the Germans and um, by the Nazis. And of course, the Nazis figure a great deal in her background because of her parents. And that becomes the basics of the book, the beginnings, where... Here's someone who um, will eventually become very involved in fighting against the Nazis, having to deal with the fact that her parents uh, were actually Nazi sympathizers. Yeah, that's quite a story, isn't it? (laughs) It's almost, you know, it's something you really couldn't make up. Um, There are a couple of things that I think you need to also add, and that is that she was born in... Belgium in Brussels, so next door to the Netherlands, technically. And then she had um, a significant amount of her childhood spent in England, sent away to boarding school by her sort of, you know, fun-loving, globe-trotting mother. Uh, And so her pre-war experience was really pretty vivid and pretty international. And it's one of the things that I think made her very mature beyond her years, innocent in her way, but mature beyond her years. And also having to deal with the fact that both parents were at least Nazi sympathizers, and that's her mother, who came back from meeting Hitler and wrote articles for the British fascist newspaper. Um, her father went on right after the meeting with Hitler in 1935 to become a German agent collecting intelligence on the British. <laughs> I mean, not a good guy, not a nice guy. And, uh, and so he dropped out of sight completely and Audrey saw him, you know, fleetingly, um, before the war and then not again until the 1950s. So, um, she had a really hard time even before the shooting started, uh, with, with these parents and their beliefs, um, with the divorce of her parents and what that did to her psychologically. So, I mean, you know, she had, she lived a lifetime really before the shooting started. Well, of course, if she, being born in 1929, by that point, um, worldwide economy had started to turn. And of course her entire early life, uh, would have been affected by, by that. But as you point out, um, and one of the things that a lot of people don't know that much about these days is that there was a large pro-German, pro-fascist group of pe- group throughout Europe, particularly as you point out in 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 England, uh, Oswald Mosley and his group of people who believed that Hitler was uh, somebody to be to be praised. And as you point out right at the beginning, you have this whole story of, of Audrey Hepburn's mother uh, meeting Hitler and, and what she felt and, and how people who were meeting Hitler felt the way they uh, were t- 
taken over by his charisma or you know his supposed charisma and his his way about it and uh so clearly during this early period um her mother certainly wasn't uh, shy about explaining her beliefs in 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 the new germany no um ella von heimstra audrey's mother was uh sort of the black sheep of the von heimstra family and um, she delighted in being this sort of outrageous character and, and you know, kind of rubbing the family nose in things like adoration of fascists. You know, it was all the rage in the social set in 1935. So, you know, it's not really surprising. And we have to remember that in 1935, Hitler was like the worldwide rock star um, for bringing back the German economy. You mentioned the Depression. He brought Germany out of the Depression before any other country managed to do it. So he was seen as sort of like, oh, you know, this is the Cliff's Notes. This is how you do it. This is how you bring your country out of this Great Depression. So uh, we have to look at 1935 Adolf Hitler, not 1945 Adolf Hitler. And it, it sort of takes some of the sting away from Ella and her sort of childish beliefs. Of course, there were people in the United States as well who were just the same way. And, and uh, part of that continues on into the belief of staying out of the war. But part of it also was the fact that some people in the United States believed that Hitler was doing well for his country and therefore could be should be um, praised for it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you have to look at like the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. You know, if, if Hitler had managed to conquer Britain, there was talk of putting the Duke of Windsor on the throne, you know, as, as, so it was a really murky political situation globally at that time. Right. And so what was, what was uh, Audrey Hepburn's mother? What was her lineage? I mean, you, you've got this huge family tree at the beginning of the book that, uh, does a good job of laying out everything, but uh, where was obviously, as we point, as we've said, she was born in Bel- um, Audrey was born in Belgium, but the family obviously had a lot of ties other places. Uh, Van Heemstr, I, I never pronounce it properly, so I let you do it. <laughs> uh, what was that family lineage from? The Von Heemstras were. Um you know, uh, they were a titled Dutch family that went back centuries. And um, they were very prominent in Dutch politics in the founding of the Netherlands as a nation, you know, in the early 1800s was really um, uh, a Van Heemstra kind of event. They were deeply involved. So any of the Von Heemstra's um, down through the generations were known across all of Holland. And, uh, and so that's how prominent the family was. And her grandfather had been the mayor of Arnhem. Um, he had also been the governor of Suriname. So this was a, you know, a, a highly visible family, a family of noblesse oblige. Um, they were looked upon as a guiding influence for the general population. And so, you know, she was right there in the spotlight from birth. So, of course, as you as you pointed out, um, the beginning of the book discusses 1930, you know, starts around 1935 and 
and when Hitler was right at its at his peak, so to speak, as far as generally um, being considered a, a, a you know a useful and, and a popular leader. But of course, as time would go on, as we know, by the late 1930s, uh, we begin to see um, the militant side coming out. Um, is there anything from this early period that shows whether, I mean, she would have been quite young. Was Audrey in any way, shape, or form, did she ever come close to meeting Hitler or anything like that? No. Uh, she was tucked away in Osterbeck with her grandparents, the von Hamstras, um, when her mother and father would run off to Germany and tour, you know, they would tour plants and and see how great Germany was turning things around and meet Hitler and go to, in the 1935 in September, Ella went to the Nuremberg rally, which was this annual thing. Like the 1934 Nuremberg rally is what is shown in Triumph of the Will. So in 35, it was even bigger and grander and, and Ella was there and afterward came back and wrote another one of her, um, little, um, treatises on the greatness of Nazi Germany. <laughs> um, but the whole time, little Audrey was, Audrey Ancha, as she was known then, was safely tucked away in Osterbeck. And I assume she, um, her mother was not getting flack, we'll use that word, from other people because they weren't 100% unusual in their praise of Hitler. So I assume that this particular that some of the things that she wrote and the way she acted, you know, believed weren't giving her any particular issues with others, I assume. No, I mean, the Baron, you know, her dad, the Baron, was displeased because she was making a spectacle of herself. But really, you know, that's Ella for you. Ella's always going to make a spectacle of herself. So it was par for the course for her at that time. So, of course, um, we know that in 1939 in September, finally, uh, Hitler invades Poland and then starts the overrun of Europe. And um, where was uh, Ella and uh, uh, Audrey at the time that Hitler finally begins to invade uh, Belgium and and the Netherlands in that area? In... uh when war was declared in September 39, after the invasion of Poland, um, Britain was an ally of Poland and declared war on Germany. Things got nasty. Uh, Ella started to think about bringing Audrey back from her boarding school in Elam, um, in County Kent, uh, England, bringing her back to Arnhem because Ella had moved to Arnhem to be close to her family, the von Heemstras. And the problem was that uh, Audrey was in love with ballet and was taking ballet lessons from this ballerina in London. And it, it made Ella sort of hesitate. Ah, you know, she's actually coming out of her shell. Audrey is. Let's leave her there as long as possible. Finally, in December of 39, when it really looked like uh, there was going to be an invasion from Germany west to conquer all of Europe. Uh, there was a rush to get Audrey back home to Arnhem. So she flew from an airport in England across the North Sea to 
um, Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam and then went to Arnhem. And this was all before Christmas 1939. And so for the next five months, Adriancha lived with her mother and, and family in Arnhem. And then came the invasion on May 10th, 1940. Right. There was that period between the end of 1939 after Poland and um, May or or spring where basically it was quiet and what was always referred to as the phony war um, before actually things started in in detail again that spring. Right. And it was phony. It was phony and quiet because Hitler was licking his wounds from uh, Poland. I think it's very interesting. The fact that, you know, you, you think that Hitler is doing sort of a, a psych out game or whatever. But no, I mean, the Poles mauled the German army pretty good. And the German army was never as big and powerful as it was made out to be. But that's an aside. It's, I just think it's interesting. <laughs> so then, of course, then the invasion takes place in, in 1940. Um, how quickly was it obvious that their lives were going to change very, very, you know, 100 percent? Oh, by sundown, you know, they came, the Germans marched in, uh, they launched a bombing campaign, they dropped um, paratroopers, uh, they seized strategic bridges, and it, it was just, it was almost over before it started, and it took a few days. There was, you know, the Dutch put up a fight, but it was called Blitzkrieg for a reason, and so by evening on May 10th, uh, Arnhem was secured and in German hands. So, you know, that was it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So, of course, Audrey now is 21, uh, approximately. I don't remember what her exact birthday was, but by May, t- May 10th, she would have in 2000, or excuse me, in 1940, she would have turned 21. So No, no, t- no, 11. She would, she 11. turned 11. Yeah. You're right. I got my, I got my, I got my decades wrong. That's that would have been really interesting if she was 21. And no, like, you're right. Then she would have been, you know, uh, I, then she would have had a machine gun on her shoulder and all that. But okay, let, let me restart that so that I can edit around my mistake there. Okay. So she was 11 years old at this point, And, of course, uh, obviously this was going to be a very terrible period for her as, as a young child and and having to deal with, with an inv- uh, this invasion and have to figure out how she's going to survive World War II and um, with in a situation, how did her mother react to the invasion given her previous uh, praise of Hitler? Oh, it was an inconvenience, you know. Um, Audrey describes her mother on the morning of the invasion as being basically sort of impatient, you know, like, oh, did this have to happen now? And uh, Adriancha, as she was called then, um, didn't really see a big change at first because, as she said, the Germans wanted to win their hearts and minds. So the Germans were pretty benevolent in the beginning. She said she just went back to school. Everything was pretty normal. 
for the first few months, but only for the first few months. And then uh, the shortages started and, and rationing started. And of course, you couldn't go see any Western movies anymore. All the movies were German. Um, and um, through it all, Ella had a German boyfriend, I mean, who was in the Nazi party. So Ella was doing okay. And her allegiance needed to be German at that point anyway. But she was still, um, you know, going along with the German party line. Of course, that's, that is pretty much the way things would go with a lot of these countries. Because as time went on and Germany decided or figured out they needed uh, resources, these countries that they had taken over would become the source of many of them. And therefore, it's not unusual that shortages would start to happen because um, the material was going to the war effort. And as 1940 wore on, uh, there was still quite a bit of, um, especially once we reached, once they first started to go east towards uh, Russia, uh, then it became a real major issue. Yeah. Uh, Flour, sugar, um, rubber, gasoline, you know, these things just started to, to go away really fast. And if you've ever been to Holland, you know how much they love their bread. And when the bread started to suffer, <laughs> you know, then there was hell to pay. <laughs> I was going to say, it's a, <laughs> it must have been a tough on all the countries that were taken over, given that bread is so, you know, France and all of them. Um, so, of course, uh, then you start to talk about what her life became like. And um, as you point out, the, the, the lack of material, the lack of, um, of everything, and how it suddenly became more and more obvious as time went on. Now, of course, uh, they were invaded in 1950 and, or 40, and the war, of course, would last almost five years from there. So uh, this became a way of life. It wasn't something that was going to end quickly. Right. Um, for Audrey, the first year, I think, was pretty much smooth sailing because she was so into dance. She, within three or four months of the occupation beginning, she started dance lessons in Arnhem, and it was all-consuming for years. Um, all she thought was ballet, ballet, ballet. She became the most famous young ballerina in Arnhem. Which is really saying something because it's a, a town of or a city of about a hundred thousand people with a very a couple of very nice dance venues, music venues. Um, so uh, she, as she said, you know, a child is a child, and you just go on in your own little world. It wasn't until her uncle was arrested in 1942; he was a prosecutor in Arnhem, he was arrested because he would not go along with Nazi party edicts. And um, it's, you know, as, as you know from the book, it's a serious side trip, what happened to him, and, um, and changed the von Hamstra family really forever, um, that whole episode. Right, because he is eventually executed, and um, this becomes uh, obviously, as you can imagine, I can imagine that that would definitely color 
people's beliefs, whatever they were in the past, that this suddenly um, was no longer an inconvenience, so to speak, as, as Audrey's mother would have said. Um, now, you, of course, talk about how even at her young age, she became involved along with other members of the family in the uh, Dutch resistance. Uh, how did that come about for, for somebody that young? Well, let's talk for a minute about Count von Limburg's theorem, who was her uncle Otto, who was executed. So um, he was a great guy, and he was sort of lost to history. She talked a lot about an uncle who was executed, but like, who was this guy? I mean, I was very interested in who he was, and I could find very little about him at first. But then Mahdi, my researcher, found his diary that he kept in captivity while he was imprisoned for four months. And you start to get a sense of who this man was and how wonderful and learned he was with a great sense of humor and an upbeat attitude and how devastating it was to everyone, including Audrey, when this father figure who stepped in when her real father was gone was executed. And the effect that had on the family, bringing them together together. Uh, causing Ella to shed all her beliefs about Nazism. Um, And they moved from Arnhem next door to Velp, where their grandfather, the Baron, had moved. And now in Velp, they are in the middle of a resistance center of Holland. And by 1943, when Audrey turns... um, 14. She turned 14 in May of 43. Right around that time, she started doing volunteer work for a doctor, like a general practitioner who worked at the Velp Hospital and uh, was also like the young, dashing resistance leader you could make a movie about. Just like super cool. He had been an Olympic athlete and he was vehemently anti-German and doing all these cool resistance things. Well, Audrey became his volunteer assistant. <laughs> I mean, this is really movie stuff. And, um, and under his direction, even though she was 14 and, and past biographers like sort of poo-pooed anything she might have been involved with because she was only 14. Well, when you're working for this charismatic a man and he has assignments for you, um, you do them and you want to do them. And that's what she started to take on. And so obviously um, this, when, as she started to do this, I I assume even at 14, she knew that what she was doing would be or could be life threatening that had she been uh, caught in any way or in part of any of these things that it most likely would have uh, ended her life. If not ended her life, sent her family to the Vesterbork uh, transit camp, which was in the northern part of Holland. And from there, you were sent to Auschwitz. So, you know, it it was a grim scenario if they were caught. Um, It's not like she did. She toted a machine gun and such, but she did dance recitals for the underground, for the resistance movement. And she delivered messages when um, a lot of flyers, uh, allied airmen, came down over that area because every day there were air battles right over their house. You know, that's it was the bomber stream flew right over Arnhem on its way to Germany. And so a lot of the pilots would come down, you know, get shot down. 
and they would land in the in the Velua, which was just north of Arnhem and Velp. And Audrey would go and take messages to them because her English was impeccable because she had spent so much time over there. A lot of the young kids could barely speak English, if at all, but Audrey could do it. So they sent her. Um, she carried the underground newspaper in her shoes. She talked about that after the war. So, I mean, like she did a lot of little things, but, you know, as she said, she did her part. And as you've talked about it more than once is that she was, uh, she was working with medical personnel during the Battle of Arnhem, what, what we anybody that knows World War II would know that that's, as you pointed, I've already mentioned, it's the Bridge Too Far story that it made into movies was a book, but uh, uh, clearly it was an important battle for that area, and she was uh, heavily involved on the medical side. I love that. I mean, I love the fact that she was there. She was an eyewitness to everything that went on, and you can document a lot of things going on in her town, Velp, which was right next door, you know, and, and German wounded were taken into Velp during the battle. A lot of civilians were collateral damaged, injured during the battle, taken to the Velp hospital. Audrey was there tending them, rolling bandages, you know, being a doctor's assistant, it's really gripping stuff. And, um, and so after, after the battle, there's, there was life in Arnhem and Velp before the battle, which was one thing. Life in Arnhem and Velp after the battle was hell. And she was in that too. And, and she lived hell from the end of September 1944 until the end of the war in April of 45. I mean, that's when it got really bad. As it did throughout any of the countries that were, I mean, even Germany by this point is, um, it's getting bad, but it's got to be even worse for these uh other countries where it's a combination of, as you point out, they need, you know, there's nothing there for, she starved, she was, the people in that area were starving during this period. Um, and frankly, once the Germans began to see the writing on the wall, so to speak, it did not help things. It made it even worse. Well, the battle lines after the Battle of Arnhem congealed right there. You know, the British uh, were in Nijmegen, which is the city just south of Arnhem. And the Germans dug in right along Arnhem and Velp. And they had anti-aircraft guns there. And uh, Velp was the main supply line. The main street of Velp was the way that German tanks and equipment moved to get into the Arnhem area. And so, like, before you even get to the hunger winter, there's this fall, uh, like, nonstop shelling, nonstop air attacks that they were right in the middle of. And, you know, friends and neighbors were killed right and left. And it's just sort of a miracle that none of the Von Hamstras went down in that, in that like horrible few months there at the end of 44. And then came the hunger winter. So, I mean, like, you know, I try to describe it as best I can. I'm, I'm not sure I, you can really capture how horrible it was. I know we hear stories, similar stories about, uh, you know, Stalingrad and, and other parts of Europe during the war. And no matter how you describe it, I don't think, I mean, the best you can do is hope that you've, uh, you know, illustrated it in a way that it makes a certain amount of sense. But the concepts are just, uh, you know, it's mind numbing, I guess is the best phrase I could use. I and mean, if you've never lived in that, it's, it's you can only 
guess or not guess. You can only hope that to, to try to make it understandable, but uh, it's got to be no matter what. People, if they've never been through something like that, it's hard to really completely visualize it. Well, one of the cool things that I've heard is that, you know, even though, spoiler alert, you know, Audrey makes it through the war, uh, people are telling me that they can't put the book down because they they can't believe she's going to survive because, you know, because it's so bad from page to page. So. Obviously, we've, we, we've, you know, the, this period for her, it's, it was, it's obviously an important period even in a normal person's life. You know, you're uh, a girl, you know, young and then into her teens. And yet it had to have affected her going forward. And part of it, though, is that the indication is that she didn't talk about much of it post-war. She much because you had a lot of trouble at first even finding information. Is because so much of it she kept hidden. Is 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 there senses that uh, some of what happened did affect her going forward in obvious ways? Oh sure, I you know it was traumatic for her. She didn't want to talk about it because it was a lot of bad memory, and that any talk of the war would bring up these memories, and and she would not. I mean, this is a girl who V ones would come down in velp. They would malfunction because they were shot just to the east. They were they were launched and they would come over Velp heading for Antwerp and they would fall out of the sky because of malfunctions. And you know she would they would blow up and kill whole families and she'd see body parts in the streets. And how do you? Why would you ever want to talk about that? You know, and that's on the one side. Another thing was that because her mother had been a Nazi sympathizer. And because of the war ending the way it did and Hitler being, you know, the atrocities, the Holocaust, Ella had to cover her tracks as best she could. And so she destroyed a lot of evidence, Ella did. And then I believe Paramount, when Audrey became a Paramount star, did some scrubbing too to make sure that Ella's story didn't contaminate Audrey's career. Then Audrey spent her life not able to talk about her mother's or father's Nazi past. And so that's another reason why her um, quotes about the war are, I mean, they're out there. I, I found about 6,000 words about of, of her talking about the war. But that's another reason why she didn't talk about a lot of these things, because she was afraid if she dredged those things up, it could put a reporter on the trail of her mother and her activities early in the war. So obviously getting the information and and putting together a narrative based on material that virtually no one had seen, uh, at least in recent times, you know, since the war, did you have issues, were there issues with the, with her family with some of this? I know obviously her son wrote the preface to the book, so that's obviously a good thing. Uh, Did her family... Were there indications that uh, they didn't have a problem with this project of yours? No, no, no. See, I I did the just like with Mission, I conducted all of my research and got all of my findings, um, and then I went to the family. Uh, and so, I didn't. I don't want to have any undue family influence until I've done all my research and all my due diligence. And then I say, okay, here's my story. Do you want to read it? 
And I figured there would be great sensitivity um, with me going after the Nazi part of it. And uh, luckily, Luca Dotti, who was Audrey's younger son, um, is the family historian. And it turned out he had been looking for me because he heard there was an author out there who was doing his mother's war story. Um, he found out about that from the Airborne Museum in Osterbeck. And he was all excited. And so we spent a number of months missing each other. And then finally, when we hooked up, oh, my, it was like I found a new best friend. He and I got along so well. And he added some terrific detail and some information from his records and his family library. Um, I filled him, as he said, you know, I connected the dots for him on on his mother and and her story and things she had said to him and lessons she had taught over the years. So, I mean, like it was, it was so rewarding to have everything sort of come together here in the ninth inning. And, um, and it makes me very satisfied with the outcome because I, he vetted everything. He looked at everything. He gave me a manuscript Ella had written for a novel. It was like an autobiographical novel she wrote that gave terrific insight into this, you know, this unorthodox woman and her mindset and her beliefs, you know, it's, it became magic when Luca got involved. How many other people did you actually interview? I know this is obviously not just from uh, actual documents and other kinds of primary source material, but how many other people did you actually interview to help put together this story? Um, the most important were the survivors in Arnhem and Velp who had lived through the war with Audrey and had their oral histories to tell. And I sat with these people um, over there uh, in over multiple research trips, just talking to them. The Dutch are are so funny because they won't volunteer much of anything. You have to ask the right questions because they're very sort of humble and practical and they never brag uh, and and you kind of have to draw them out and it's not easy. So, I mean, I spent many hours uh, interviewing uh, in particular the two daughters of Dr. Uh, Hendrik Visser to Hooft were so helpful because Dr. Visser to Hooft was the swashbuckling doctor I talked about earlier, who was the head of the resistance. And so his, his daughters were, were so helpful and um and and many others who were about Audrey's age or a little younger when the war went on um just just getting their stories you know really if you think about it it's it's at the last minute you know in another how many years will the entire generation be gone so i mean i feel very fortunate that i i got the story even though if somebody had thought to do this 30 years ago wow you know, you would have gotten so much more, but at least I think I got the the basics of Audrey's war from these people and from the records. Yeah, there's no question that World War II, sto- um, any kind of World War II story is going to be less and less dependent on being able to talk to people who actually lived it because of, you know, the, as even younger people, obviously, you know, Audrey was... Um, 11 years old, or, you know, or 
she was very young, 10 years old during when, when World War II started, and she was born in 1929 and would have been 90. So um, you can pretty much do the math that for somebody to actually have a decent memory of the wartime, they almost would have to be Audrey's age or maybe slightly younger, but uh, it's going to be tough to find anybody now. And, and as you point out, in the next few years, it's going to happen pretty quickly. I mean, that that everybody's going to be gone from that era. Yeah, and it's kind of heartbreaking because, you know, I, I, these people are now my family. I love these people. Um, they took me in. They took my wife in. They, <laughs> We went into their homes um, and and now they love us and we love them. So, I mean, like it's, it's, it's hard. And it, it puts me in mind of, um, Mary Johnson, who was on TWA flight three with Carol Lombard. And I managed to find her luck my way into finding her, uh, just a few months before she died. And the, the last thing, one of the last things in her life was me handing her a copy of fireball and, and reading her parts of it. Uh, to her and like she died a month later it's <laughs> and it, i feel so lucky that i came upon her and i got to tell her story and and each one of these three books has an element of that where you get these people like in the autumn of their lives and you let them tell their stories and it enriches this global story you know it all of a sudden it's it's this human thing uh i love that about it but it's also kind of it's bittersweet. You know, it's sad, too. I'm getting the impression from talking to you and having read two of the three, I've not had a chance to read Fireball yet, um, is that this per, this note, the, the Dutch Girl book, the current one, is probably the most personal of the three, turned out to be the most personal of all three books for you. Yeah, it really it, it is personal, and it makes me sad too. Because how the heck do you top this? <laughs> well, that was always that's always my last question, and it was going to be clear. What's next? I mean, obviously, you called it. It's been called a trilogy. I assume you're the one that called it that. I don't, you know, especially since this is supposed to be the final book of the three. But I can't imagine that you're going to just completely walk away from <laughs> Hollywood in your writing. So. Uh, you're right. Where do you go from a, from a book like this? Yeah, it was really my publisher that was quite enamored of this idea of a Hollywood trilogy, and I went along with it. I don't know that I would do another Hollywood in World War II book anyway, but you know, I can't imagine leaving World War II behind because you know it's so. Not only is it popular right now, I kind of feel like I lucked into this thing where Hollywood. Uh, no, uh, World War II books are all the rage right now, you know, whether it's novels or nonfiction. So that was lucky. But I just love the drama of the war. And, and it's so big and there are so many facets. I feel like I could do something else in World War II. And, and I really want to. Now I have all this background. Why would I want to let it go to waste? <laughs> now, that's the thing. You've, you know, even information you already knew with all your three books and and the amount of research you've had to do in the various sources, that would pretty much tell you that uh, a lot of the, at least the hardest part of some of the background, uh, you've already done. So you're right. right. Maybe, um, who knows, maybe you can find something about Hollywood and Korea that you can do that, you know, we can. <laughs> but um, who knows? 
So obviously, uh, as you point, as we've talked about this book, uh, this this whole era and this situation really made a big difference to you, and uh, I think it it really comes through how much you are able to find, and and hopefully this will help other uh, historians and other writers to say. We've got to keep digging. I mean, one of the great things about research in the tw- in the 21st century is that while these periods are far- getting farther and farther away, there's still a lot of material out there that hopefully as people decide they're going to go to the trouble of digging for it, uh, that they will find stor- other stories like this. And I, I urge any author to also be careful because when I went into the Audrey Hepburn um, universe and was looking at biographies. I found so much bad information that one author would just rely on another author, and these things would, you know, the mistakes would just continue in, from book to book and from year to year. Um, always go back and work from original sources and start building from scratch. Don't just assume that what you're reading is is right, because boy, um, I feel that maybe the most important thing I did was correct a lot of this history, you know, that had been gotten wrong about Audrey. Right. And that's true. I I totally agree with you. I mean, one of the things I know from teaching history is you've got to get students to understand that, uh, you know, especially people who haven't really done much historical, have done no historical study in the past, that you've got to not only find as many primary sources or at least original sources as possible, but also hopefully find similar sources that you can use to compare so that you're not deciding, well, this must be it because it's the only thing I've found that says, you know, that 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 can prove one way or the other. So I totally agree with you on that one, that uh, research is such an important aspect of of particularly nonfiction, but even somebody who's writing fiction. There's no reason automatically to just throw in a bunch of stories that aren't true just because you think it's easier than actually doing the research. Right, and and just because you read it on the internet doesn't make it true. <laughs> <laughs> Except I read all about your book. No, I'm kidding. So it looks like you've already got. I mean, look, the book comes out April fifteenth, and so it looks like you already have a tour starting. Uh, sounds like you're going to be. In fact, I was. It was interesting. The only two dates listed so far. I used. To, I lived in Cleveland for most of my life. So when I saw you were going to be in Hudson, Ohio, and the, yeah, I said, "Wow, he's going to be in my old neck of the woods." That's that's great uh, that you're already that you're start. You know, that's not until May, but it, it looks like uh, hopefully, like with the Jimmy Stewart book, where you definitely got a lot of interesting um, uh, appearances and interviews and such. I hope this new book does just as well for you because I think it deserves it. Well, thank you. I, I there's talk of uh, New York City and. Uh, talk of LA and it's all I think it'll come together fast but uh, so I'm enjoying my quiet time so is is the book going to be published over in Europe in in the Netherlands or are you not sure yet um, the Italian edition comes out on April 16th the Polish edition will be soon after that the Dutch edition I'm very hopeful that it will be in time for the 75th anniversary of the Battle of Arnhem in September. I think that will probably happen. And that'll be very exciting because I'll get to see all of my friends again. Yeah, I would think that that would be an obvious place to, I mean, because, you know, Audrey is there, is her, you know, there, she belongs to them. So it would be great to, uh, to be able to share the book with them. Exactly. You know, she is definitely Dutch. 
So, well, as I say, we we talked a great deal and about the book, and I, I really think it's a it's a testament to great research. But then also, you need the writing too. I mean, you, you didn't just throw it all the, throw all the research down. You had to uh, tell the story, and I think uh, people who read the book will, even if they don't know that much about Audrey Hepburn, there's a story there anyway. Especially since her Hollywood life isn't an important part of the story. There are a couple of flash forwards, though, because, you know, um, because of who she became and how the war affected her. So I wanted to just like throw you ahead in time a little bit to see, you know, how who she became and give you the direct reason why she was the way she was. Thanks again for your time. And I hope people do definitely reach out for the book. Well, thank you, Joel. It was a lot of fun. Thanks. Thanks to Robert for appearing again to discuss this new book. I hope you have learned much more about Audrey Hepburn. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books in Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network.